for our Old Testament reading today. Will you turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 12? Exodus 12, I'll read the first 20 verses as background for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was celebrated through the ages to the time of Jesus. And so, following our reading of Exodus 12, 1 through 20, we'll turn to the 22nd chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses 1 to 13. Exodus 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off. From Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day 
I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Luke 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them, apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large, furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Amen. May God add his blessing to our understanding of this passage. All through the history of our redemption, the careful Bible reader senses in it the rightness of God's timing. Things just happen at the right moment. The Apostle Paul notes in Romans 5, verse 6, that while we were yet sinners, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the same is true, of course, on a much smaller scale of your life or mine. Even the little things that occur in one's own life, they may seem accidental, but they're not accidental. They're not haphazard. These things that happen to us in life come in due season, which is the reason that parents, uh, for instance, say no to their children uh, on a number of occasions when the children propose doing something that they're not ready to do. When your six-year-old says, let me prepare supper for the family tonight, the wise parent 
uh, says, not yet, not yet. When your 12-year-old wants to take the family car on the spin around the block, the wise parent will say, not yet. You're not ready yet. The wise young couple thinks through when it's the right time to marry. Not rushing prematurely into it, nor delaying it unnecessarily. It happens at the right time. There's a proper time for everything. Situations and the people involved in them have to develop, have to mature, ripen, as the Thanksgiving hymn says. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn doth appear. It's just the way God has chosen to administer things, to run things. He governs history sequentially, chronologically, in an orderly way. And for this very reason, he appointed the sun, moon, and stars to be for signs and seasons, days and years. Because, as he knew and as we now know, life doesn't happen all at once in one blinding flash. It can't. It wasn't meant to. God has appointed a time to plant and another later time to harvest. He's appointed a time in life for birth, for growth, a time for love, a time for marriage, a time for work, a time for rest, and also ultimately a time to die. Each in its season. So, when a young man dies, it seems out of season. It seems wrong to us when a young man dies. Musically, you may remember, well, not many of you will remember this. Some of you may remember this. The Birds. The Birds, 50 years ago, did American popular culture a great favor by impressing on that Vietnam generation the biblical lesson to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And if this is true of the ordinary events of life, it's equally so with the great historical milestones of our redemption. For 430 years, the children of Israel multiplied under bondage in Egypt while Simultaneously, in another part of the globe, the Amorites' cup of iniquity was gradually filling up to the brim. And the Passover, Exodus, and Conquest represent the historical tipping point at which God suddenly pours out both his mercy and his judgment, his covenant faithfulness toward Israel and his judgment against the seven godless nations of Canaan, whose cup of iniquity had just run over. It becomes time for God to act. And when he does, when that time is at hand, there is a wondrous efficacy and power about God's acting. And, of course, the Apostle Paul was... Uh, familiar with this concept too, and he writes the Galatian churches, when we were children, 
we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Whether we were Jew, whether we were Gentile, we used to follow these elementary principles, these basic building blocks of human religion. The basic building blocks of human religion are laws, traditions, and the keeping of them. That's what our spiritual and social lives used to be all about. The keeping of laws. Doing what we're told. Towing the line. Coloring within the lines. Painting by someone else's numbers. Those rules and regulations were those elementary principles that used to occupy and fascinate us back when we were children, Paul says. But then during the reign of Caesar Augustus, history reached yet another tipping point. And God's people were about to make a new discovery of his amazing grace. Back in the old days, we were held in bondage to those elementary principles, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might, uh, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That tipping point of history became very, very good news for people who can't seem to color within the lines. The incarnation of God the Son to shoulder both the law and the curse of the law on our behalf This was an absolutely new discovery of grace, something new in history. And it came not a moment too soon or too late. It came at precisely the right time in history. And in the course of his own ministry, Jesus is keenly aware of the fitness of the moment for anything he did. Anything he did. There's no better day than the Sabbath, for instance, to heal a sick man. No better day than the Sabbath. A sick man or a man born blind or one born with a withered withered hand, it's just profoundly right to heal on the Sabbath. And repeatedly on the pages of the Gospels, especially John's Gospel, we find these words on our Savior's lips. My time has not yet come. Remember, my time has not yet come. In chapter 2 of John's Gospel, he says it to his own mother at the wedding feast in Cana. In chapter 7, he declines to go publicly with his brothers to the Feast of Tabernacles because, he says, his time had not yet come. And then, when he goes privately after all, appearing suddenly in the temple to preach without anybody's expecting it, no man laid a hand on him for the very same reason, John tells us, because his time had not yet come. Clearly, Jesus understands the mission itinerary that his father appointed for him. No man takes his life from him prematurely, 
But at the right time, he lays it down of his own accord for others. Until that day, until that day, he does everything necessary to secure the right to redeem us. And he does this by keeping God's law. Because a blemished, imperfect lamb never saved anyone. A sinner can't redeem himself, let alone other sinners. And so it falls to Jesus in the time that he has, it falls to Jesus personally to keep this law unbroken, to remain the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as Luke 22 opens, it is perhaps as late as Wednesday of what has been called Passion Week. It's as late as Wednesday. The cross is probably about 48 hours off. The seven-day feast of unleavened bread is drawing near. In fact, it was going to begin at nightfall the next day with the slaughter of the Passover lamb the first night of the feast. And this fact of the Passover and the feast represents an annoying constraint to the Sadducees of the priesthood and the temple guards who worked for them. Just the fact that Jesus was right there. Jesus, the annoyance, the, the bane of their existence, was right there, and yet so are all these people. So are all these witnesses. All these people in town for Passover make it practically impossible for them to get their hands on Jesus privately. And it's an annoyance to them because they have an assassination in mind. And no way to carry it out without witnesses. Of course, they didn't fear God, but they feared the people because they feared the scandal of being seen publicly as the men they actually were. all their flowing robes and fine speeches and chief seats in the synagogues and so forth, these privileges and emoluments can cover an awful lot of ugliness and sin. So they have this problem, and then suddenly things take a turn for them. Judas Iscariot, of all people, Judas Iscariot shows up on their doorstep. Now, Judas was a young man with some genuine natural gifts. And he'd taken an early interest in the teaching of Jesus, and all the more so as Jesus' star seemed to be rising, as it did, as we've seen in our study of Luke's Gospel. But Judas quickly discovered the strangest thing about Jesus. No sooner would Jesus perform some wonderful healing or some marvelous deliverance than he'd tell people to keep quiet about it. Just don't say anything about what you've seen. Don't say a word. And then sometimes 
Jesus would disappear altogether all night to pray by himself alone. Which is fine, except sometimes this habit meant that he'd be sound asleep when we really needed. He also tended to withdraw from public adulation and sometimes even rebuked the motives of those who sought him. There was even that time the well-fed thousands wanted to make him their king by force if necessary. They were ready to grab him and make him their king. And he'd have absolutely nothing to do with it. Not on their terms. And Judas is genuinely perplexed by all of this. It bothers him. He had signed up with messianic thoughts, but what kind of a Messiah is this? And then lately, he's been telling us about this need he has to go to Jerusalem, not to be crowned, not to be carried on the shoulders by the adoring crowds, not to plot something against the Roman overlords. He has a need to go to Jerusalem, he says, to suffer many things of the chief priests and scribes and elders and be killed and be raised again on the third day. What's all that about? Well, whatever it was, it certainly wasn't quite what Judas had in mind when he first signed on. His early surprises became a settled state of confusion about this man Jesus, and his confusion soured over time to dissatisfaction. And dissatisfaction festered into opportunism and opportunism into petty theft. And Judas develops this habit of dipping into the common till. Thievery like that, thievery, pours real guilt onto the sensitive conscience, and a guilty conscience makes a wide-open door for the accuser of our souls, doesn't it? Satan loves a guilty conscience. It's his favorite plaything. When we have guilty consciences... Now, having said that, you've also got to understand that Satan cannot constrain G Judas to do anything. He can't. Omnipotence doesn't belong to Satan. Satan's a mere creature. He's limited in knowledge. He's limited in space. He's limited in time. But among all the creatures, there is no one as sly, as devious, as the serpent. Ever since that failed temptation of Jesus in the Judean wilderness, back in chapter 4, Satan has been quietly following in the background. He's been following Jesus at some distance looking for an opportune moment of his own. He's been looking for some way along the way to trip Jesus up. 
that he might not be the unblemished Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Being the observant devil that he is, he learns about Judas and sees in him a golden opportunity for setting in motion a whole cascade of trouble. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them, apart from the crowd. So now we have, suddenly, Satan re-energized. Satan, who's been essentially a frustrated gospel onlooker ever since chapter 4, verse 13, where we read, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now the time has come and he's suddenly re-energized because here in the disaffected heart of Judas Iscariot, he's found a kindred spirit. Another like him who's looking for that opportune time to make his move against Jesus. It's not as though the devil makes Judas do anything in particular. He doesn't operate that way. Satan doesn't have the authority or the power to, to operate that way. The New Testament tells us again and again in one way or another, resist him and he'll flee. Resist him and he'll flee. The danger is that Satan recognizes and welcomes the kindred spirit of disaffection. The heart that was once enthusiastic and now has cooled. So Wednesday and Thursday are spent hatching this plot against Jesus, a plot to be played out as far from the public eye as possible. And the intrigues going on between Judas Iscariot and the chief priest seem to escape everyone's notice except for one person. Jesus, the word of God incarnate, is perfectly aware of what's going on. He is. He knows. He's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, says the apostle to the Hebrews. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So Jesus is aware. But for his part, Jesus simply yearns to have a quiet Passover evening with his disciples. He is yearning for that. Just a quiet Passover evening with my family, my disciples. Some sweet, uninterrupted time with us. He knows that his hour of being delivered up is fast approaching, And he realizes that quiet Passover evening spent alone with the twelve is just the sort of opportunity his enemies are looking for to get their hands on him. It's just the moment they'd be looking for, because the Passover meal, as you know, the Passover meal isn't something that's celebrated out in the streets. 
The Passover isn't some rocking New Year's Eve kind of celebration with a million of your closest friends on Times Square. It's not that thing. It's not that kind of thing. By design, the Passover is a quiet, closed-door family affair. The Passover is observed around 10,000 family tables in 10,000 Jewish homes privately. What an opportunity that Passover meal represents then for Judas the betrayer. Because no one's going to be there at that Passover meal but Jesus and the boys. Only Peter among the twelve is old enough, probably, to offer any degree of resistance, if he decides to, which seems unlikely. If Judas were just able to get the address of the place, all he'd have to do is hand over the information to the temple authorities. All he needs is an address. So at the appointed time, the temple guards come, they bust down the door, they take Jesus into custody, everyone else turns and runs, and Judas is 30 pieces of silver richer. But he needs an address. He needs an address so he can get it into the hands of, so, of those who so desperately want it. But Judas isn't going to get that address, is he? He's not going to get it from Jesus himself because asking Jesus directly would just be a little too obvious. But he's not going to be able to get it in a more roundabout way from anyone else either because Jesus takes precautions that no one, even those in his inner circle, no one knows the address in advance. Can you accidentally divulge information you don't have? Of course not. Neither could Peter. Neither could John. And so this explains the mysterious directions that Jesus gives to Peter and John in verses 10 to 12. You want us to make preparations for the Passover meal tonight? Great. We'll buy the lamb at the temple. We'll buy the bread and the wine, and the bitter herbs, and anything else we need, but, Lord, where are we going to take all of this? Where are we going to deliver the groceries? Where are we going to roast the lamb and actually spread the meal? It's a straightforward logistical problem that needs to be solved, and soon, because remember, none of these people has a home in Jerusalem. They're all Passover pilgrims. They're all transients. They're from Galilee. Now Bethany's not far off where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live, but they have their own family. So Peter and John ask, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? Give us the name of the inn. Give us the street address and we'll take it from there. Now, the directions Jesus gives them are sometimes cited as evidence for the omniscience of his divine nature. 
He simply knows in advance how it's all going to turn out, and it may well be so. We shouldn't rule that out. But as we consider the need of that particular moment, as we consider the hatred and the violence that was then brewing against him, couldn't we also find in these words of Jesus and these directions that he gives, couldn't we find the advanced security measures of a prudent man who wants so much to enjoy an uninterrupted evening with his disciples. It's said that the tactical success of Stonewall Jackson during the Civil War came from the fact that he just kept his plans to himself. Jackson knew what he and his army had to do, and he did it lightning fast by forced marches in directions that no one expected. Not even his own staff, not even Jackson's own staff necessarily knew what he was up to. He just did it. And it's much the same situation here. By prior arrangements made directly with the hosts, Jesus is able to give Peter and John just enough information to get the job done and not so much information that lying around it might get into the wrong hands. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that Jesus keeps the street address of that upper room so close to his vest? Why is it important that he do his own advanced planning and coordination? It's important. It should be important to us. Because it shows us how strong is Jesus yearning to commune with his disciples. It's a mark of his love for us. That we are not interrupted. The appointed moment hastens on when the shepherd is going to be struck down and the sheep scattered. But until that moment, until that moment, he earnestly desires our fellowship at the table. He does everything necessary to protect that time. Wiser than the serpent, more innocent than a dove, Jesus Christ takes every measure necessary to have you, his church, safely by his side.